Coming up next, the bookening reads A Prince Caspian. Nathan Alverson, your humble and obedient host. Hey, hey Nathan. Hey, you guys ready to talk about Prince Caspian? <laughs> yeah, we're ready. Well, you want to introduce us? Oh, yeah, I got uh, over there. I've got scholars bother reading. Hey. <laughs> Brandon Chastain. Hey, Brandon. Hey, hey Nathan. Uh, how you doing? Yeah, you're sounding awful German. And... <laughs> I sound exactly like myself. This is how I talk. I give context and stuff. You, <laughs> yeah. you, you guys, yeah, you know, guys know about that, right? But you look beautiful today, Brandon. Mm, thank you. Thank you. It's the first time for everything, wow. right? <laughs> <laughs> and over there on my left, we got my best friend, Jake Minshall, pastor who's a master of reading. Wait, you're, you're, saying, you're saying Jake's a better friend than that. It hurts my feelings oh, a little. Oh, yeah, Nathan, yeah, I, yeah, I really yeah, feel like I should be a best get friend. Get over it, crybaby. <laughs> <laughs> Crying those fatty grease tears over there. <laughs> and that's how we know he's doing a poor impression, because that's not the kind of thing that I would ever say. Yeah. That, <laughs> you just call him Lardo. Yeah, yeah. Lardo. All right. Are the new listeners all gone yet? Okay. Okay, good. 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 It's just us. Just all us right. and our real listeners. It's just us and <laughs> true fans. All right. Guys, let's talk about Prince Caspian. But we promised folks that Brandon would give a little. It was a cliffhanger. That's right. Much needed context about Narnia because you provided in the context episodes proper. You talked more about Lewis, but you didn't really talk much about Narnia. Oh yeah, I didn't. He started writing Narnia, or he, everybody, anybody who's a C.S. Lewis fan or has heard of C.S. Lewis knows the famous story that as early as like sixteen, he had this image of a light or a lamp out in the middle of the snow. Right. And then sometime later, he also had the image of a fawn in the snow. And so the, that's the way Narnia began was his two, like these images that just sat there in his imagination until World War II. And then what happened is we talked about the kilns, the house that he bought with his brother mm-hmm. and where they lived there. During World War II, like you find out at the beginning of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, children actually had to go and live in these little country homes because the main cities were getting bombed. And so Lewis actually had uh, some children come and live with him and his brother. You can find some letters around that time where he says that these children were the ones that actually kind of helped him learn to like children. Mm -hmm. Because one thing was very much like the professor in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He was horrified that these children didn't know certain stories that he was trying to, that he would tell them. He's like, so you guys need some stories, right? And so he decided he was going to create one for them. It kind of went nowhere. It was not, it had, it didn't really have the imaginative bent. At the time, the original, but it did have four children who went to this professor's house, and then they got into some adventures. Mm. These children originally were named Anne, Martin, Rose, and Peter, and Peter apparently at the beginning was the youngest. But eventually, he would kind of put this aside. Some friends of his would read this first attempt and said it was trash, and so he just decided not to do anything with it. Then one day, and anybody who's tried to create before kind of knows this experience, Aslan just came out of nowhere, the Mm. lion. He says Aslan jumped into the picture and kind of helped bring everything together. Mm. And it was that that then inspired him to start writing The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in 1949. One of the, uh, Robert Green, who was one of the people, one of the Inklings, 
read it, said he loved it, encouraged him to go and get look for a publisher. Around the same time, Tolkien was having some moderate success with his early fiction for a Farmer Giles of Ham, and he knew this illustrator that he, and we talked about her last time, Yeah, but he introduced Lewis to her as well, and she drew some pictures, and he loved them. And so quickly, in October, he published his first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The rest of the history became very famous, and like immediately, even before that one was published, just given the success of that novel with some of his friends, he had already written Prince Caspian and The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. So he was writing these in pretty quick succession, and there was one published pretty much each year. The immediate response to these books, well, okay, so some of the literary influences, he loved Beatrix Potter. You can see that in these books, Mm -hmm. Talking Animals. He loved um, Edith Nesbitt. In fact, apparently in one of Edith Nesbitt's stories, I forget where I saw this, she has a wardrobe that leads to magical places. Hmm. And there's also a letter that, or an essay that Lewis wrote where he was talking about the first time he read real, like, good poetry. He said it was like walking through a wardrobe into a magical land. And so mm. this, even this image of the wardrobe was something that he had played with for a long time as well. But yeah, he loved, the write, he loved to write these books. He loved being in this world. And so he wrote them all pretty much one a year, published one. Mixed response at the time. A lot of people thought children's literature shouldn't be so fantastic. Not in the sense like great or wonderful, right. but it shouldn't be so f- given to fantasy. Right. Why? What was their reasoning? Well, they thought it should be more practical. And so we've actually seen, we saw a similar response to uh, um, E.B. White when he first tried to publish his books, right? There was a, people weren't really responding well to it. They said, well, children's books should be more educational. They should teach more of the morals and prepare them for reality, right. is what people thought. And you see the similar response to like Harry Potter where certain people, right? They should be reading G.A. Henty historical fiction to teach them how to be real boys in the world. They shouldn't be reading this fantastical garbage. Yeah, but nobody wants people, people like to read things that are fun and they don't Have like to read. Have you ever tried reading G.A. Henty? Nope. It's nope. bad stuff. But anyways, sorry, homeschoolers. Is that a shots fired? Or I don't even know. Oh, some, some homeschoolers love G.A. Henty. All right, well. It's just a probably lazy. not the kind of people that listen to us. I don't think anybody, I sh- would be very surprised if anybody is offended by that statement. Um, we'll find out (laughs) we'll find out we always have ways of finding out Mm. Um, but yeah so that's the response was mixed at first but slowly it started to gather steam and then especially by the 70s and 80s became a staple and it pretty much became like Charlotte's Web it became the thing that that author was known for right so a lot of people know who C.S. Lewis is because of Chronicles of Narnia but don't actually know that he was anything else right? right I've met people like that before it was me as a kid. Yeah, they've read Chronicles of Narnia, but they have no clue he's a Christian. They have no clue of anything other than that they like those stories. Mm-hmm. Right. And so um, only other small point that might be interesting for people to know, at the beginning of Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I mean, not that there aren't other things for people to know, it does, it's um, dedicated to Lucy. Mm-hmm. And that is Lucy Barfield, who was the daughter of Owen Barfield, his best friend. Hmm. And so he really was her godfather. And she was one of the first to read the book. So she actually is supposed to be the Lucy that appears mm-hmm. in those books. And and so, doesn't that dedication run something like, you're too old for this sort of thing now, but one yep. day. That's right. Ah, yes. One of those quotes that you people like to bandy yeah. about on the internet <clears throat> quite a bit. Yeah. yeah so it's maybe the only dedication to any of these books. But yeah, I wrote the story for you, but when I began it, I had not realized that girls grow quicker than books. Yeah. Mm. So you can then take it down, dust it, and tell me what you think of it. I shall probably be too deaf to hear and too old to understand a word you say. 
but I shall still be your affectionate godfather. So Someday you'll be old enough yeah. to start reading fairy tales again. Yes. And one of his favorite, I mean, that's just the C.S. Lewis staple thought, right? Is that yep. mm-hmm. you, everybody goes through this dry spell where. I was so know. much older then, I'm younger than that now. Yeah. Yep. And so you can go back and read fairy tales again. That's why a lot of people justify reading these as adults by saying, well, they were, they're not really meant for kids. They're also meant for adults too. But that's a whole other question. Uh, but yeah, so that's that's some of the context that is helpful to know for these books as we get into them. The one that has the most lore about it is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, because it was the first, and all the rest just come out of the fact that he wrote Narnia, that he created that world and just wanted to stay in it. I guess one other fun fact <clears throat> is the fact that there actually is a Narnia. It's a little Italian city that one of his friends remembered. One day they were looking at a map with him, and he was really struck by that this little town called Narni, also known as Narnia, and he underlined it. Hmm. It's over near Rome. And so there actually is an Arnia that you can go and visit. Other is than, it themed other than the with name? Aslan? I don't know. That'd be fun and... to figure that out. <laughs> but um, Duff Beaver. other than the fact that he Beaver liked caps. the name, none of the other inspiration for that book. <laughs> none, of, none of the other, uh, none, none, that city has no other inspiration for this story. Right. Right. <laughs> other than unusual, the name. Populated by rodents of unusual yeah. size. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And then last time, the only, one of the other fun facts to talk about is we talked about how this book has its own Dan Brown enthusiast types mm. that we'll dig through and try to find, make a mountain out of every literal molehill because mm. there are moles in these books. Oh, yeah. Because I just can't imagine he's just writing a simple children's story. There had to be something deeper going on here, like he knew the secret to where Hitler is now or something. I don't know what they <laughs> expect to find in these. Argentina, the answer is yeah. Argentina. And then we talked about the planet theory. That's the other thing that people really like to talk about. Right. And each, I think, with each of these, we'll go over what planet it's supposed to be but do we want to say what planet prince get we said last time so we, we said well. it at the end of last time do mm-hmm. we want to save it till the end well we said we said this one last time i think so this is it. mars yeah mm-hmm. and it's because it's one about war this mm-hmm. one's pretty much the most straightforward of all of them you don't really have to stretch things to see this one and really that theory of michael ward's all falls onto that one line about the lion right the lion hearted yeah joe and that's where people michael ward makes a lot of hay out of that a lot of, I mean, that's basically what academics do is they try to find one phrase and make a lot of hay out of it. Mm-hmm. So that's how careers are made until you get those tenure jobs. So Worked for Michael Ward. Worked for Michael Ward. I'm not, yeah. Doing okay for himself with if that I'd, one little. Uh, if I had found that phrase, I can't say I wouldn't have made that my dissertation either. It's well, just, it's just about having that idea before someone else does. Yeah, I don't know. <sighs> well, it's Prince Caspian. Yeah. What did, did you guys think about Prince Caspian? I should just say an additional bit of baggage is that we used to watch, and I bet there are listeners out here that will remember these as well. There was a BBC adaptation of Narnia, and it has these really chintzy special effects. It's just people in animal costumes, and they don't look much better, some of them, than the Cowardly Lion. It's pretty silly stuff. This, the, but they, it's basically each one of these is an adaptation word for word of the books and so narnia enthusiasts really like these and my mom loved these and they have all these all these good british actors it's nobody that people know now but it's you know similar to how harry potter was able to just draw on this wealth of talent these bbc productions are the same way they're much better cast than the the disney things i think that my first experience with narnia actually was with um the old narnia the old chrono (coughs) the old lion the witch and the wardrobe movie Mm -hmm. and i remember being freaked out by the beavers (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I like, am 100% ignorant of this thing. You should look those beavers up. They were terrifying. Well, I'd I think not. I'm going to preserve my pristine childhood imagery 
of Narnia. Giant, huge monsters. <laughs> yeah, it's just a man in a beaver costume. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Imagine my dad in a beaver costume. <laughs> that's kind of what you get. Yeah, that's awesome. Hello, son of Adam. He kind of has this <laughs> toothy yeah. voice like an actor with, with fake teeth in, because yeah. that's what he is. <laughs> yeah, it's it was weird. Yeah, it's pretty weird, but it does, for better or for worse, affect a lot of the imagery and the way that I think of Narnia. And they have this terrible lion for Aslan, who's just like this prop that you probably like you imagine they called cut. And then like two guys came and had to move Aslan. (laughs) He's just like this thing that I don't know that you ever actually see him walk. I don't remember. He's just very, he's just like this plush toy and his mouth moves about one time for every five or six words that he says. So his mouth will like open a up. Of cheese. <laughs> it really is. It's really bad. So his mouth will open up and it'll just be like, greetings, children. Welcome to Care Paravel. Nobody can see your arms. Yeah, nobody can see <laughs> my arms. I'm sorry. I know we're it's a, a podcast. Yeah, I, know it's a, I know we're in an audio medium, but imagine Aslan's mouth moved maybe twice for that whole you know, son of Adam, you have forgotten to clean your sword that his mouth probably opened twice there. Yeah. So it's really, Aslan is really chintzy the most. He can't actually jump on the witch at the end. So they just have his mouth open, like his mechanical little adorable mouth opens and he roars and then the witch like falls, falls in a hole or something like yeah. that. <laughs> so To be fair, your mouth only moves like twice for every 20 words. You uh, that's something too. that people don't know about me. <laughs> <laughs> I also like to romp. Yeah. It's pretty unsettling. <laughs> One time after I died and came back, I was just like, yeah. I think I feel a roar coming on. <laughs> that time I tried to kill you at the stone table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it didn't it was nice work. of the mice to chew off my cords though yeah, sure was. i don't know why you had to shave me before that was, that was unfortunate oh, cool. yeah. <laughs> the blood all over the hair yeah, yeah, yeah. i get it i guess <laughs> all that to say the adaptation of prince caspian they actually combined prince caspian with the dawn Trader. i think i'm sorry guys i think we might have to watch one of these just that you guys i might have to make you guys suffer well, there, there are also the new movies yes and the first adaptation the lion the witch and the wardrobe I don't remember much about it, but I don't remember it being all that off. I remember them adding a few things. I didn't um, like it. It was kind of like, what's the thing? Well, they recently? missed they missed the tone. Is it Tilda Swinton? Yes. It was tone deaf, but they pretty much had the story there, right? Yeah, the words were mostly right? there. Yeah. Tumness is literally the only thing that stands out as pretty solid about that yeah. movie in my mind. I, I did see that. I hardly remember it. And I thought the children were pretty good. And their uh, Lucy was pretty good. Yeah. I just thought there was a series of questionable but decisions. But they, they gave Lucy dark hair and she's the golden haired one. Oh. Well, oh. and plus, like, okay, I'm sorry, actress that played in the BBC thing, but they cast a homely girl to play Lucy in the BBC adaptation. And then it's a perfectly pretty normal girl that plays her in the Disney thing, which of course it is. But that kind of ruins one of the major little moral lessons that comes, is it Don Treader, where Lucy's real jealous of Susan because Susan's the pretty one. The pretty one. It was, it was just That's nice. Don Treader. It was nice in this BBC adaptation that they were so, such devotees of Lewis that they were willing to actually just cast a girl that, you know, she wasn't horribly ugly or anything. She was just, <laughs> she, wasn't. she was just appropriately not. Yeah. You she know, was she, the plain one. She was the plain one. And they cast but, somebody that would, would have been the plain one. In um, Prince Caspian is where it really went off the rails as far as Hollywood politicizing. Mm-hmm. And so Susan actually had, get, develops a crush on Caspian. All right. And, but she also becomes like a warrior princess. Good deal. And if I'm remembering her correctly. And then also Caspian is really disappointed when he finds out that they're only children, which that is not at all 
even hinted at in this book. Nope. The thing that I hate most in adaptations of these kinds of properties is when they add a modern subplot. I don't mind when they change things or rearrange things or, you know, we have to add an action scene, whatever. I understand that's how it works. Barrels, but, barrel jumping. Yeah. barrel. I, I was fine with the barrel jumping. Okay. Peter Jackson. But when Elf Kate falls in love with yeah, Bar, not, with one of the hobbits as, uh, or just, one of the dwarves as a subplot. That's just creepy. It's a outside of the spirit of what the original author would have done. I mean, like Tolkien wouldn't have want, wouldn't have ever wanted to do a giant barrel chase, but I don't think he would have necessarily mind it maybe he wouldn't like the cartoony way that i don't know what tolkien would think and who cares <laughs> he wouldn't have liked it nathan <laughs> shield surfing but he's not opposed to action in general like having a extra action scene doesn't ruin the spirit of the books necessarily having a romance between an elf and a dwarf does um yeah. anyway we're not <laughs> i don't know when we'll talk about those silly things i'm sure Once we, we get to a thousand i don't think we'll yeah oh boy are we gonna have to Next summer, baby. Are we going to have to read The Hobbit? And are we going to have to, which is fine. I think and, it's all Tolkien's material, right? Is that what we're Oh, yeah. We're going to read like the, the, the Dark Man. Citadel or whatever. But when they add modern subplots, when they add character beats that wouldn't happen. So, yeah, it's a dwarf falling in love with an elf. But it's also just like when a character gets annoyed, you know, like Aragorn and Legolas are going to have a falling out because they need to have a get to getting together later on. It's like, well, Aragorn and Legolas wouldn't have done that. You know, yeah. it's things like that. Having Lucy. Well, those movies it. have a big problem with understanding the kingliness of Aragorn. Yeah, well, they, yeah, they sure do. from the beginning. Well, we'll talk. The whole idea. Well, yes, we can talk about that later. Friends, no one bows to you. One of the stupidest moments. Yeah. In, Absolutely uh, retarded. And you then, bow to no one. You know bow to no one. You know. And I cried <laughs> you know like an. No <laughs> you know about to no one. <laughs> I cried like an idiot when that happened in yeah. the movie, but just the same. It's, it's just, wrong. They have no understanding. And the other of, thing of just. Aragorn being this like insecure, I don't know that I want to become king. Right. I don't know that I yeah. self doubting. Start a little restaurant in the Shire. Right. <laughs> Versus so, the Aragorn who's on a quest to become the king because it's his destiny. Right. Yeah. There's not the it's doubt like, in the book that is in the movies. Right. But well, we but I modernize everything. We always think that it's good to add that angsty for men, the angsty doubt of their authority, and women, the unseemly grasping of that authority. Yep. That's the modern way of handling everything. Somebody should read Genesis. Somebody should read Genesis. Somebody should read Genesis. (laughs) Certain filmmakers, I guess. Yeah, that line. Here's what I remember about the line, the witch in the wardrobe. And we'll talk about Caspian in a second. I haven't seen the Caspian movie. What I remember about that movie is I thought that Tilda Swinton did a really great job at performing the heck out of a misconception of how one should play the character. She brought psychological realism to a character that did not want it at all so the witch she did a good job playing a psychopathic witch but you don't want a realistic psychopath you want a fairy tale villain and i really felt that about that adaptation she's literally a stand-in for the devil yeah she needs to have more of that emperor palpatine kind of gleeful evil i'm just bad not not angelina jolie but like sleeping beauty animated maleficent and Antoinette Swinton's a great actress if you like androgynous actresses but she's (laughs) not right for that part because she brings a lot of nuance to it and you don't want nuance for that part actually and the other thing that i just thought was annoying was the feminism the no no santa claus telling the women they can't fight in this one they're gonna have bows in that line no that's all that's not in there because they have susan doing her archer thing on the battle in the battlefield which i suppose they justified to themselves by saying well she doesn't in caspian kind of but she doesn't really do it in caspian they make a point about how she doesn't want to kill the guy and she just doesn't do it in caspian yes 
She hits his helmet. No, I know. I'm she just pops saying. pops off the guy's helmet. Yeah. And then she has the, the arrow contest fight, with the contest with Trumpkin, Trumpkin. where she feels terrible. And then when the battle's on, she's out romping with Aslan right. in the trees. <laughs> They're all dancing with those. <laughs> oh, that weird. Pan. <laughs> <laughs> Louis, no. No, stay. No. <laughs> Why would you get drunk at the typewriter? <laughs> what is it? Uh, Why? Oh, the bookening. Yeah. Terrifyingly right. Why do we always have to be so terrifyingly right? I don't know. I don't know. We predict these things, and then people get mad at us, and then Lewis goes and does the exact thing we predict will yeah. happen. I'm going to synthesize paganism in the <laughs> weirdest way possible. It's like, what is this? All right, we'll, we'll get to crazy. it. crazy. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. Um, well, I, I guess I was just saying, if, if a modern filmmaker was going to argue for it, they'd say, well, C.S. Lewis, he was maybe given into the... The mores of his time when he when he did the women can't fight, but he kind of backtracked on that later when Jill fights in the last battle, and we see Susan kind of become. And he a definitely war. gave her bow and arrow and Lucy a dagger, and so yeah, it's like you expect them. You can't set something up in a movie that you're not going to pay off. Chekhov's dagger. This is not. I'm like, no, it's not. Which is a stupid argument because that's not how he writes Susan, and I think the fact that Jill fights in the last battle is just an indication of how desperate. The last battle is supposed to be not any kind of big statement on Lewis, yep. Lewis retracting his views on women. And if you, we really want to talk about feminism. It was ugly. The part of what's uncomfortable about the last battle is that everything gets really ugly at the end. Right. Right. Yeah. That's what is part not to the stupid ape. Everything goes ugly. Everything is bad. Battles are ugly when women fight. If a, if if Jill has to fight in the last battle. That just shows you how, it just shows you how and, corrupt and ugly everything's become. Right. And if you want to talk about the other warrior princess, uh, she gets... Xena? Well, uh, yes. If you want to talk Xena about Xena... I do. I would like to talk about Xena. Well, oh, right, go, go on. Go <laughs> on. Let's talk well, about Xena. Well, she was a warrior princess. <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, what's her face? Shasta. Is it? Yeah, no, that's the name of the boy. Yeah, yeah the Shasta's boy is Shasta. the boy. What's the girl, though? Corwin? Uh, Mooney? No, Corwin is uh, been, his twin brother. It's been... Uh, you got him right there, man. It's been I do have it. It's been 20 years since I've read this. these darn things. Shasta and Corrin are brothers, right? Right. What's the, the name of the girl in that book? Ah, uh, there's the horse. Can I call you Bree? Bree is Bree the horse. Bree is the horse, yeah. Uh, where does the girl make an appearance? This is a good story I forgot about. Yeah, I'm, looking, a good story. I'm looking forward to this one. This may be the best. I may have to re-say what I think. I really like that scene when they've got Rillian or whatever that, Rabidash. Rabidash, yeah. They've got him and... I don't remember Arvis. Arvis, yeah. Arvis, you know yeah. what, Nathan? I retract what I said. I think Magician's Nephew's number two. I think this is going to be my favorite. All right, let me uh, put just, that. Just looking through this again, it reminds me of how good this story is. I don't It's I good. It's it's one of the best. Yeah. All right, so I'm going to say Brandon says it's going to be his favorite and Magician's Nephew. I don't hardly remember that book, but if you want to go, if you want to talk about Lewis and feminism, isn't Arvis a pretty tomboyish character and <laughs> doesn't she get pretty well disciplined but from Aslan for that being an, an annoying brat or something like that. I don't yeah, know. I think she does. Isn't she the one that gets she lashed? Gets clawed or she lashed gets clawed or by him, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I don't think you can make an argument that C.S. Lewis was any much of a feminism, but I mean she yeah, she was a haughty feminist, I should say. Yeah. Brat. And yeah. then she ends up getting the most severe physical discipline Aslan yeah. well, the only ever gave phys- she the gets corporally physical. punished and nobody else does. Yeah, she's slashed by a lion. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's pretty brutal. <laughs> anyway, but he's he's got it. I mean, so 
Erebus also had many quarrels and I'm afraid even fights with Kor, but they always made it up again so that years later, when they were grown up, they were so used to quarreling and making up again that they got married so as to go on doing it more conveniently. Ah, that sounds cute. like you, yeah. you married it. <laughs> yeah, it's more convenient. To... <laughs> he loves so those Lewis. cutesy little things, man. Lewis, yeah, but he's good at them, I think. He he's, is good at them. And there's... they also have some grains of truth cute. to them. Well, yeah. Yeah. But it's cute. Yeah. yeah, it is cute, and it. But how many authors try for an effect like that? And you're just like, please, all yeah, all of them, especially one, those of them that have read Lewis. Yep. Oh man. And I don't. I'm not just making fun of Christians. You know who else? Uh, Neil Gaiman, John uh, Updike. <laughs> John Updike loved Lewis. Did he do cutesy things? Oh, he that, tried to yeah. do cutesy. He's gross. Yeah. I have, if we, I don't think we'll ever do Updike, but I have big issues with Updike. Mm, maybe we'll do him someday. As a know. novelist, I think he's an as amazing. As an essayist, essayist. he's. Kind greatest of, baseball essay of all time, right? Absolutely. Yeah, he proves that he knows what he's doing. With essays, he was a good New Yorker writer, but... How his... fans bid kid a do. Yeah. I, maybe one of the greatest sports essays of all time. If I'm not mistaken, not I, one I've read that. Of, not maybe one of, one of the greatest sports essays of all time. Well, speaking of Prince Caspian... Yeah. Um, <laughs> sports essays. Yeah, we've gotten off the beaten path here, but... This is the greatest sports essay of all time, is Prince Caspian. Is Prince Heck Caspian? Yeah. yeah, well... Fencing. Yeah. You know what I liked in reading these, both these books is Lewis isn't one of those boring, lame fantasy authors that skimps on the battles. Like even Tolkien does skimp on battles. Tolkien's always like, and then the coolest thing ever happened, and I'm going to give it to you in one sentence. Even though we know I like to describe things because I spent a long time describing farmer what's his face's fields, fields. But you know, the ride of the <laughs> Roar Hiram or whatever. I'll, I'll give you in one sentence. L- no, not Lewis though. He has heads. But those getting... movies, on the other hand, they yeah. they really give them to you. <laughs> yeah, well, you know he has what? He- heads rolling. Heads yeah. getting walloped off. I love that word as a kid. That was that was so cool when the guy's head gets walloped off. Uh, what did you guys think about Prince Caspian? On the backstroke. In a backstroke, yeah. yeah, just like I thought it was. I mean, so we kind of talked about this last peri- last period. <laughs> last period. <laughs> last, last period. <laughs> we discussed. No, Jake was pointing out how the battle scenes. Are good in this book, mm-hmm. especially the real the realism. They're of good the, by yeah because of their realism and yeah. how underwhelming they are. That's right. While they still have those flashes, yeah. Of, so where he's Miraz is awesome, a real, right? Miraz is a real threat. Yep, he's well, a real threat. I, I was going to say something else. Yeah. No. Oh, but then there's the uh, very Homeric style of just walloping the head off like that as well. We just didn't have the blood spurting. That's all we were missing. Right. I love but, seeing redeemed Edmund. And Peter together yep. in That's this really whole nice. thing. It's really great. Yeah. Them just being brotherly and noble and strong and right. It's really tricky what he but had to do is, still. yeah, have them be the kids that we remember from last time, but have all this experience. Like last time we saw them, they were doing all their corny Shakespeare. Sister, must we hunt the stag? To have them yeah. be able to feel like they've lived both those lives yep. and are credible warriors and yet still relatable kids is a pretty neat trick. And I don't know yeah. exactly how yeah. he pulls it off, but he just does. But it really does have the vibe of, remember how we lived the whole lifetime last summer? Right. And remember the one thing? Yeah. Let's try that one trick. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, there's, and there's not the cheap modern trick of having nobody ever actually really change. No. So like Edmund doesn't go through the same... Oh yeah. boy, and, boy, would that be a drag? Man, that think would of it terrible. No, Edmund is a new man. But yeah. think of think of a modern writer getting a hold of this. All they would do with Edmund, all they would know what to do with Edmund, is to have him be jealous of Peter being the High King. Right. Well, that's the, right. the, you look at the Marvel movies. Let's let's have the same group of characters learn the same basic lessons over, over and, and over and over and over. How many times does Tony Stark learn 
the same lesson right. over and over and over. I should take responsibility for other people. He must learn that in like at least three or four movies. I should stop being a selfish narcissist. Right. So yeah, that that was actually, it was refreshing to have that. It was refreshing. Because Edmund doesn't, he even says, I think, that he's the high king or somebody points out to him, isn't he the high king and shouldn't we listen to him? I think it's Lucy maybe. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh yeah, you're right. Yeah, you really get the sense of Peter as the yeah. just and great warrior, whatever, however Lewis describes him at the end. Trumpkin's right? actually the one who's always saying that. Right. That's right. And so, which is nice because with the last book, when he has that discussion with Aslan, you don't know what Aslan said to him, mm-hmm. but you get the sense that it actually did take root. Yeah. yeah and absolutely. you see it. We see it with our children. Mm-hmm. Like I've had a significant change with one of my children lately that I didn't know was going to happen, but it's been a blessing to see it. Yeah. And it's actually growth and it's not there. I don't expect them to, I mean, they might still struggle with what they have struggled with, but they're growing. Right. And it's encouraging mm-hmm. to see. So there's more realism here than the pessimistic. Well, it's either the pessimistic idea that characters can't change. Right. Or the Hollywood idea that we're only going to make buck if we don't let them change. Well, yeah. And he manages to keep all the characters. The problem with redeeming a character is that sometimes it is the conflict that makes the character in in. Interesting. So once you redeem Edmund, it's like, okay, what are you going to do with Edmund? That's, make, that's, that's, that's well, a real problem that a writer has to solve. Like, okay, we can't have two Peters now. No, but you know So what what's you the difference? You have it actually be that the changes that happened then have an effect on them. Right. So when Lucy first, the only person who stands for Lucy when she wants to go and follow Aslan is Edmund. I love that. Yeah. Because yeah. He remembers. It's so awesome. Yeah. yeah. And so Lewis does have it have consequences. Right. But it has consequences for the better. And you don't fault Peter necessarily for not following Lucy. Yeah. He's got to consider everything else. Lucy is literally like, there's the lion. And Peter's like, I don't see him. Yeah. Right. A Hollywood movie would very likely, I wonder whether the movie actually does amp up the drama by making Peter more obnoxious and have to have a bigger repentance. Peter's like, you know, Lou, I want to believe you, but you know, I've got to work with the fact. And what I see, and plus there was a vote. Mm-hmm. And also, I'm, I think with the Hollywood movie, Lucy may never have had the moment where she gets chastised by Aslan. Oh, she yeah. should have. Yeah, that's great. As like, yeah. that's that's a real. Said, there was no reason for you not to come up. Everyone, anyone who's walked through sanctification in their life, I think, can relate to the moment of, well, I did the right thing, and it still didn't make me holy. Like. Isn't I think we've all said to God actually in a in a, a wicked moment like come on, isn't that enough? Like I did basically what you wanted. I told God, my right? friends that it was wrong, but I still went with them. Yeah. Right, you wanted me to also like have to get a taxi right now. Like I was only obeying you if I got stranded and had to get an Uber instead of. You. Yeah. I, I think we've all had that conversation with God if we're being honest, and the answer is always yes. Yeah. <laughs> you should have, idiot, and. It's a painful lesson to have to learn. So, yeah, again, the, the strings that we were seeing from the last book, consequences, discipline. Yeah. They are good things that Lewis has. Another favorite moment along those lines is that moment when they get chased back up the, the ridge all the way and Lucy says whatever she says. and It was the closest that she came to and saying, P- And I Peter's just so. like, man, Lucy, you're awesome. Yeah. yeah. That's the closest this entire time you've come to saying, I told you so. Yep. 
And it's yeah. just a really sweet moment between those two. It really is sweet. Yeah. What else stuck out to you guys about this book? I have to say, I really liked this one. I didn't remember it well. And the, the whole reason I brought up the BBC adaptation is because they short shrifted in the adaptation. They yeah. they cram it into the same movie with Voyage of the Long Dawn Treader. So you, it's it's fairly short. And I can understand the instinct to do that because there's not a lot of meat on this narrative bone. But, you know, it's like they travel down the river and then some stuff happens is basically the story. The a couple of things that have always stood out to me, Lewis loves these characters like Trumpkin <laughs> mm-hmm. that are like the doubters who are loyal and understand that they're men under authority. What's the name of the guy in the, that hideous strength? I kept thinking of him. You remember at, at Ransom's house, there's just some there's random the Scottish man, yeah. the atheist doubter guy, right? And Lewis has a lot of affection for that character type. Yeah. And P- for those P- char- Puddle Glum is in a similar yes. type too. And yeah, but this, you know, and he has that really great line where it's like, he gets really mad at Nickabrick or whoever for, you know, not wanting to go and see, you know, go to the place. And he's just like, look, I'll go. Mm-hmm. And I've given Cass- him my advice. Now I'll take exactly. my orders. Uh, yeah. Caspian's like, wait, wait, you don't even believe this is a thing. He said, well, there's a time for advice. You're the king. There's a time for advice. There's a time for orders. You've had my advice. Now it's time for the orders. And that's just such a great little moment. Yeah, Lewis loves those characters. A yeah. little bit of that might be Lewis, you know, he loves the honest pagan because he always kind of wants to just ba- be, baptize yeah. paganism. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but it is true that I think I've met honest pagans in my life and they're kind of delightful. They're and, awesome like that, yeah. Well, and I think of in the Bible, like the 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 overseer of Daniel and his friends, the guy that's just like, okay, I'll 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 let you eat vegetables. There's those kinds of people that pop up in the stories of the Bible, yeah. and I've had those people in my people in my life, people that God uses through what what do you want to call it through the blessings of common grace. You know, they're able to do great works of kindness or loyalty yeah. or helpfulness without being motivated. Well, and, by- you, and yeah, and you even see like what the leper that comes to. Elijah mm-hmm. and is like he's cleansed of his leprosy he's a Gentile and he's like okay but I'm also a slave or you know uh, a, oh I have to serve the king is it okay if I like I he leans on my I have to go with him he leans on my shoulder as he bows in the temple to right. the idol do I ha- is it is okay? it okay if is I bow okay? down to the idol <laughs> you know as part of my job and interestingly Elijah's like sure <laughs> 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 this is one of the weirder. It's one of the weirder things, yeah. right? Like, um, there are always little things like that. There's yeah, so surprising. There's also another great sort of really quotable Lewis moment where, and I forget. I just read this like yesterday, but mm-hmm. but all in one sitting, and so it's all sort of running together. But it's that moment. Okay, I don't remember the context, but Aslan's there. It has something to do with somebody's dignity or whatever and Aslan says some some line like um, it's probably Reaper cheap when he loses his tail if it has to do with dignity but I don't think it's that because it has to do with uh, being a son of Adam and he says being a son of Adam Caspian says I wish I was wishing that I came from a more honor, honorable lineage he said you come of the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve and that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth be content <laughs> That's pretty great. <laughs> Aslan said that. Aslan says that to Caspian when he finds out he's from pirates. You know, for all that we will probably and have already on these podcasts complained about Lewis biting off more than he could chew when he decided to write a Christ figure, he does capture something about 
the Jesus of the gospel in his portrayals of Aslan that I really like. And it's that quality of unexpectedness of he's always going to turn something on its head and put you in your place. Right. If you think you, you, you've done the best thing possible, he's going to tell you why you completely suck. And if you think, ah, I kind of suck, he's going to tell you why it's that you're actually kind of great. It's like, it's that, I don't know how to articulate it, but it's that it's the unexpectedness. It's the weirdness. It's the otherness that comes across in the gospel. Mm -hmm. Not very many people who set themselves to write a divine figure even try to capture that, let alone come close to getting it every once in a while. And Lewis actually does. Mm -hmm. Quite a bit. Quite a bit. Yeah. We end up just having like cheap platitudes. Like, well, I well, yeah, that's, uh, the that's thing what is, the is, with Dumbledore, right? Yeah, exactly. Aslan almost never feels like if he has something serious to say, it always lands. Yeah. Uh, Lewis was one of the rare people that was capable of writing a character that was wiser than he was, which is a neat trick to be able to do. And you see people yeah. like Rawling fall flat on their face. But that's an example, for example, in the movie, they there are some weird little choices that they make, the Disney movie, to the, where they really flatten Aslan. And the big one is he jumps on top of Tilda Swinton, and then we see sadness in his eyes before he bites her to death. <laughs> you know, they just you see like the lion feels sad that he has to kill somebody. It's just like C.S. Lewis never would have done that. Yeah. He's not a tame lion. C.S. Lewis well, understood that Aslan should always zig where we think he's going to zag because he's other, you know, because he's divine, basically. Yeah. I'm trying not to be blasphemous in the way I talk about this semi-blasphemous con yeah. conception, which makes it a little difficult. But it's something that the filmmakers just didn't understand. That to them, well, if we're going to do Jesus, then he needs to be a Jesus lion. Then he needs to be com really compassionate before he kills the bad guy. Like, really sorry that she made him do it. Mm -hmm. But, like, the Aslan that I know wouldn't be all that sorry that he had to do it. He's glad to do it. Yep. More than happy to do it. Lunch. Lunch. <laughs> <laughs> I really like this book. I liked the feeling of... It was the, kind of the point. <laughs> yeah, that was the point. Like, <laughs> hey, I broke the table. I broke the magic. And now that means you're dead. Yeah, <laughs> your lunch. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know it, but you just undid yourself and sucks to be you. Yep. And, and, and you're a witch, by the way. <laughs> like, we're not... We don't feel Who's sorry. Been holding people yeah. captive and turning them into stone and killing them and enslaving them for literally hundreds of years like yeah, yeah you, you deserve to die the, the whole point of a witch is that they are evil and they deserve to be exterminated they are not like you read Grimm's fairy tales it'll be like and then at the end while everyone was happy they ripped out the witch's entrails and <laughs> everyone was even more danced happy. around and yeah <laughs> well the famous one is in the story the original story of snow white yeah it's snow white the wicked queen is after the prince kisses her back to life and everything they invite her to the wedding she gets to the wedding and it it just says very matter of factly and they had red hot iron sh iron shoes that she was made to dance in until she was dead <laughs> and it's kind of horrifying but kids love that stuff and or at least i did when i was those red hot shoes um, I, one I would where... not have loved that well i was i'm the kind of guy that and I, I was the kind of kid who was empathetic enough that I was just, wow, the, no, due, no due process. I mean, I didn't articulate it this way. But in the great fairy tales, it's always just like, it was a witch. It's like crushing a spider or something. Like, yeah. you're not supposed to think about this like a, a human being. It's, you, you, you see a witch, you cut off its head. It's, yeah. you know. Like the hag in this story. Yeah. yeah. That's a good scene. Yeah. You can Where, always bring them back. I like that line. That's, yeah. a, good, that's a good horror yeah. line right there. Oh yeah, it's a it's a terrifying scene. Yeah, yep. And I think there's good sympathy for Nickabrick, the character who could have been good if he hadn't 
That was interesting. What'd they say about him? Uh, maybe it's just basically could have been good if there had been somebody to sh- there to shoot him every day of his life. Yeah, is that yeah, what yeah. they said? <laughs> Probably. Caspian thought it was sort of a matter of timing, right? Like, yeah, he went sour too quick, or that's right. Yeah, he went sour too quick. I think that's what it was. Watch out! Oh, they're at the gorge there. That's right when they get back, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's after they're dead. Yeah, it's right after Peter or somebody. I think Caspian says, "I'm glad we don't know who actually killed him." Yeah. Yep. Oh, I, yeah. The other thing is that was nice was let the vermin be flung into a pit, but the dwarf will give his people to be buried after their own fashion. Yeah, that was nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. Here it is. I'm sorry for Nickabrick, though he hated me from the first moment he saw me. he gone sour inside from long suffering and hating. Yeah. If we had won quickly, he might have become a good dwarf in the days of peace. Yeah. I don't know which of us killed him, and I'm glad for that. That's a nice, that's a nice moment. Yeah, it's one of those, it's a golem sort of character. Yeah. He has a good understanding of the effects sin has is over a long period. Turns mm-hmm. you bitter and sour to where he's not a creature that is just wicked by virtue of being a wicked thing, like mm-hmm. the werewolf or the hag. The hag. It just deserves having its head cut off. Yeah, I really liked that. I really liked, I really, maybe this is more, I, I don't I don't remember this being one of my favorites as a kid, but I really responded to it this time. Yeah. And I think it was the very, the kind of mundane, dark adult tone of it. Well, the great kings are gone, and so now the world has gone to crap, and nobody believes in anything anymore. It was like it was relatable, frankly. It felt modern. It felt 21st century. It felt like I feel a lot of the time. You know, just the, well, all the good things that ever happened were in other eras, and now mm-hmm. we're in the era era where nobody even believes in anything anymore, and we can't get our act together, and the magic has gone out of the world. It's just a very relatable kind of feeling, I think. And it was fun. I don't know. I always like those kind of, they're not often done well, but I like those kind of meta stories that, okay, what happened after, ever after, you know, like yeah. what? I actually like the this, this stupid example is the Batman versus Superman, where it's like Superman won the day, but he crushed all the buildings in the process. And now everybody's mad at him. And like, how's the world? That movie was bad. It was not done well. But I actually do like when things take a step back and say, okay, so the fairy tale happened. Now, now what happens? I think that's an interesting question to explore in a story like this. If you can do it without being cynical or mm-hmm. turning into Shrek or saying the fairy tale was all a lie, which C.S. Lewis patently doesn't. Yeah. But I, uh, I enjoyed this book for the most part. For the most part. For the most part, eh? Mm-hmm. What, what didn't you enjoy? Well, what didn't I enjoy? I didn't enjoy chapters. Where does the great romp begin? Yes. Let's talk about the great romp, the GR. How they were busy. <sighs> yeah, that's in chapter 14. So you have the fight with Miraz, and then they couldn't get to the bridge, and you wonder, okay, so how did the bridge disappear? It has that nice little, you know, the guys there running to the bridge, but the bridge isn't there. Mm-hmm. So what happened to the bridge? Yep. Whoop, side, <laughs> Freeze side frame, swap, yeah. zoom in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're probably wondering You're what probably happened to the bridge. bridge. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, here yep, we go. This that's is my... me. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> so Aslan was standing over the girls when they woke that morning, and he says, <laughs> "We will, we will make holiday." The trees had all gone because they have that. Tolkien and Lewis both have the tree the, worship. Well, the tree worship, but they also still the wonderful Macbeth plot device. Yes, with yeah, they the like trees. that. Yeah. Yep. 
not see Macbeth in those moments. Yeah. Well, I think mm-hmm. it's a I fantastic. Think, it's one of the great Shakespearean battle scenes. Yeah. Well, and if the trees if, are moving, if Lewis and Tolkien are the men that I take them to be, I think they both probably thought like, man, that sucks that it wasn't actually trees in Macbeth. <laughs> like, let's fix this for Shakespeare. Yeah. Like, let's just make it trees. Yeah. That's what it should have been. The, yeah, one instead of, those, of like, men carrying bushes, yeah, yeah, like, yeah let's exactly. just make it real let's trees. Let's make it trees, like the yeah. the you know. So, yeah, they swim through the. You wonder who did it first. The fact that it was actually old Mister McGregor and Scooby Doo is dumb. Let's just tell a ghost story. Is, is kind of that feeling. Yeah, so who's stealing from who here? Then is it Tolkien stealing from Lewis, or is it Lewis stealing from Tolkien? I think they're both stealing from the. St- I'm gonna I'm gonna do them the credit of saying they're both stealing from their favorite old things. Yeah. And who doesn't think that forests are terrifying? And if they were able to move against you, it would be. Yeah, awful that was nice the description yeah. of the trees rushing forward and him likening it to when you see a wind sweep through forest and say now imagine yeah they're yeah. all running out that was pretty great yeah that was good so here's how he parties yes aslan or yeah the aslan how he holidays does it do people um, people know who bacchus and the mynads are right yeah, you might as well tell them i guess i mean it's a god of god of wine god and, of wine and lust basically right. and the mynads were often the crazy like the worshippers of Bacchus, Dionysus was his other name. They would often they were the women who would tear people apart mm-hmm. in their frenzy. Right. Literally tear people apart and give themselves to orgies and things like that. It was an awful religion of, and cult, some right. cult within Roman and Greek mythology. So just <laughs> people know that this is the guy who's now making an appearance to party with a bunch of young girls. Mm-hmm. So we have Bacchus <laughs> and the main that's his fierce madcap girls. <laughs> That's what it says. They're madcap, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Salinas Hello, was, boys. <laughs> and Salinas was still with them. Lucy, full rested, jumped, fully rested, jumped up. Everyone was awake. <laughs> Everyone was laughing. Flutes were playing, cymbals clashing. Whole party moved on. Bacchus and the main it's leaping, rushing, and turning somersaults. Where does it get really weird? So they go to Baruna. They tear everything apart. They tear the bridge down. and With their vines. With their they vines, surround everybody yeah. with the vines, wrap up people with the vines, and feed them clusters of grapes and wine. And yeah, and so they're, and then they go and they free a whole bunch Lucy of people. Lucy leans over to Susan and says, "You know, I'd be kind of terrified of all this if Aslan wasn't here." Yeah, which is telling. Yes. Yep. Well, that's getting right there. That's a good scene to go to because the whole idea of not being safe with these creatures. These are creatures that, as I said, this is the god of wine, god mm-hmm. of lust, god of sex with all his minded followers. And Lewis, in a weird twist, is trying to then bring them into the good side. Right. I mean, he's giving them the sort of dangerous, they're not tame, they're dangerous quality. and But still, they're, somehow they're on the good side. They represent these, in Surprised by Joy, he talks about these desires that are just coarse and strong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you get the sense that here, these are just natural forces that are coarse and strong. They might hurt you. They may not hurt you, but they're not good nor bad. They're just there. They're forces. And Aslan knows kind of how to control them. Which is, by the way, a wonderful depiction of the creepiness and terror of pagan deities as worshipped and as portrayed in pagan civilizations. The arbitrary, random acts of generosity and cruelty are a very powerful depiction of something. My only quibble, little quibble, is that... Become, he tries to say it's good. Yeah, they become followers of Aslan. And so like he would be appealing to things like Milton and stuff. Those guys all argued that the pagan gods were demons. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Nobody, that's the point we were making with Augustine last time too. Augustine never tried to make it look like it was good what happened in the gymnasiums. Right. 
these guys never made it try to look good that the pagan gods were the pagan gods. Nobody. And so, yeah, did you find the... Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's, you know, everybody's showing up and... Is it a romp, Aslan? Cried the youth. This is uh, Bacchus or Silenus, Silenus, whichever. Is it a romp, Aslan? He calls out. Everyone seems to have a different idea, and they're engaged in this weird, confusing dance together with mm-hmm. all these people. It may have been Tig, but Lucy never discovered who was it. It was rather like Blind Man's Bluff, only everyone behaved as if they were blindfolded. It was not unlike Hunt the Slipper, but the slipper was never found. <laughs> it's pretty creepy right what made it more complicated was that the man on the donkey who was old and enormously fat began calling out at once refreshments time for refreshments and falling off his donkey and being bundled onto it again by the others while the donkey was under the pressure the whole thing was a circus and trying to give a display of walking on its hind legs and all the time more and more vine leaves everywhere and soon not only leaves vines climbing everything running up the legs of the tree people circling around their necks Lucy put up her hands to push back her hair, found she was pushing back vine branches. The donkey was a mass of them, his tail completely entangled. Something dark was nodding between his ears. Lucy looked again and saw it was a bunch of grapes. Grapes, refreshments, refreshments. Everyone began eating whatever hot houses your people may have. You've never tasted such grapes. Really good grapes, firm and tight, blah, blah, blah. More grapes. Everybody's a sticky mass of stained fingers. Their mouths are full, laughter never ceased. And then they plop down and then... Lucy says, I say, Sue, I know who they are. I say. I say, Sue. I know who they are. Uh, and she says, who? The boy with the wild face is Bacchus, and the old one on the donkey is Silenus. Don't you remember Mr. Thomas telling about them long ago? Yes, of course. But I say, Lou, what? I wouldn't have felt safe with Bacchus and all his wild girls if we'd met them without Aslan. I should think not, said Lucy. Yeah, and like this is supposed to be some virtue. Right. Like it's good that Aslan is willing to take you into these dangerous I just got an image of something that I've watched that had something similar that happened, but I can't remember what it was. But it's basically the idea that there was some strength and beauty to this God, even though he did things that were shady and dark, mm-hmm. that were still redeemable almost. That sort of, it's 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 hard to put your finger on it, but it's it's just it's it should strike you as wrong. There's something wrong going on here. What bothered me about it as a kid, and this section. I didn't remember until I re- I didn't remember the section at all until yeah. I reread it. But the little boys being turned into pigs actually bothered me. The guy that's beating the kid and turns into a tree bothered me. Like these things yeah. just seemed scary to me as a kid. Like, and I think yeah, well, I, go ahead. Well, I think that the reason looking back on it to me, there's something very pagan about that kind of justice because pagan justice is almost always excessive and arbitrary and, and spiteful and arbitrary. And yeah. so it might even be hitting the right person. Like you'll read these, you know, if you read the stories of the Greek gods, it's like somebody will get in trouble and they'll just get turned into something or violently dispatched. And it's like, yeah, they kind of deserved it, but it's always excessive and it's quick yeah, and it's exactly. arbitrary. And you don't, nobody stopped to think, okay, sir, why are you beating this kid? What did the kid do? What kind of a beat? The you gods know? are, they always feel fickle. They always feel yeah. fickle. It's like. And so they came up with some horrifying, like. You're in the bronze cow where they would heat the, they would put you inside the bronze cow and then they would heat it mm-hmm. so that as you were screaming, it would sound like the cow was bellowing. Right. As you were burning alive inside this cow. Oh my. And these were pagan executions. And I think that's, so to go back to the Bacchus scene with yeah. all the vines growing and all the dances and you can't tell what's happening. If Aslan is really supposed to be a depiction of some divine, something right. divine, so at least some kingly authority, why is he allowing this to happen? This is like debauchery and excess. Yeah, our God. The fact that he's participating in this and allowing it to occur, there's no, there. it's not like abundance. That's not what's happening. Right. It's not like 
a table overflowing. This is, it's gluttonous and sexual and it's, uh, it's dark and awful. It's without restraint. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's simply it's without restraint. Yeah. It's excessive. And There's a difference between excess and unrestrained and abundance, right? My cup overfloweth. That's abundance. Right. But that's not Bacchus then wrapping everybody with vines and doing this blind man's bluff dance. Right. And eating succulent grapes off the head of donkeys. Right. Well, and if you're going to mete out justice, okay, <laughs> fine. There's little boys that deserve to be turned into pigs. Let's have some due process. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's just something that feels arbitrary and cruel about we're just going to sweep through and right every wrong. It's like vigilante justice or something. And mm-hmm. I guess it's supposed to be, we're supposed to be okay with it because Aslan's at the head of it. But yeah. it just still feels really arbitrary and, and out of control. And that, to me as a kid, felt scary. Like, what if my dad was spanking me and he just happened to be a little upset and then he got turned into a tree? Like, these are the kinds of things I would think about. What if I was in a bad mood and was misbehaving to the teacher and I got turned into a pig? You know, what if just because I was caught in the wrong moment, some fickle demon god (laughs) decided I deserved ultimate punishment? Well, it's because I found that to be kind of creepy, you know? Uh, well, it's because Lewis has not, Lewis has been telling a fantasy story this whole time mm-hmm. with pretty well-drawn characters. He's not been telling a fairy tale. Yeah. And then to suddenly step into the world of fairy tale where these sorts of things would make more sense is kind of horrifying because you get the wrong sort of logic. Yeah. If this was just a one-off, if this was just the story of what happened when Bacchus came to town and it was a short story, I think I'd be fine with it. It'd be a different or kind it, of story. In a fairy tale, you would say it was an old man who always beat the little boy with a stick. Yeah. Every day he beat the little boy with a stick. And the little boy would always tell him, no, I don't want to be beat with a stick. Right. But one morning he beat him with a stick. The next morning he beat him with a stick. Next morning, however, he beat him with a stick. A lion came and turned him into a tree. Right. <laughs> Let's let's write this. (laughs) (laughs) But that works because it's fairy tale logic. And that's not the sort of world that he's created for us here. And yet he wants that to happen and he wants it to then not seem arbitrary to have an Aslan who can take Sue and Peter off Mm. and share some real wisdom with them at the end. And also then be the Lord of the Romp. Right. Who arbitrarily decides to turn people into pigs and trees is okay with Bacchus's Game of Thrones style party. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we should play devil's advocate or Bacchus's Bach, Bach, Bacchanal av- advocate here because what? how are people going to argue? People are going to argue against this one. They're going to say, look. God decreed parties in the Old Testament. God is the God of joy and joy might look- And feasting un- and- To a bunch of stuffy Calvinists like you guys. Maybe it looks unrestrained, but I mean- John came- Fasting. Jesus' first miracle was to do wine. It was to make wine. Jesus came and they called him a drunkard and a glutton. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think our response to that is, yeah, but there's a difference between partying that is still biblically restrained and partying that is just completely given to every sort of debauchery and excess. There's a reason that Lucy, I think Lucy is actually maybe subconsciously reflecting Lewis's discomfort with what he's allowing here. The fact that he's allowing for this thing that is wicked. I mean, the back, back in his Dionysian cults, right. they were awful. And the fact that he's now having this figure turn on to come into his story because he wants to make some sort of statement about fruitfulness. I don't know what he's trying to do with it other than just say Aslan. It adds to his mystery and untameness of Aslan. It also adds to his that Aslan isn't against pleasure. Pleasure may not be the right word, but he's not against parties and fun the scary demon gods can be turned to his will yeah to 
be actors of yeah. poetic justice and to enable his people to win and to even allow them to feast. But, but only just, only under his this far and no farther. But that's just lists up to his old tricks and people are going to resent us for drawing these conclusions, but that's just Lewis back at the till we have faces kind of thing saying paganism was just Christianity well, that hadn't discovered itself yet. I and mean, the, the, I guess the equivalent would be, can you imagine Jesus going to Rome and deciding he was going to have a party with the Dionysian cult, but only let it go so far just to show that he was okay? What do you think happened when Jesus was hanging out with prostitutes and sinners? What is that exactly? Well, I don't think it looked like the Moulin Rouge. But there's a big difference between being accused and uh, just being a glutton <laughs> and <Yeah>. a drunkard. <laughs> there's, there's a I difference don't know how to respond being, to that. <laughs> I mean, I think you were the right response. There's a difference between being accused. <laughs> just being. Because you're with those people. Because they. And also because he came eating and drinking. Yes. But he was he was with them. It'd be like someone going and hanging around the homeless people here in Bloomington, then getting accused of being a meth head. Right. Even though they're. Well, and Aslan didn't, or he didn't come Aslan. smoking. Yeah, what it said, what Jesus says is, John came so so. The so son you're of man was actually drinking and eating. Yes, the yeah. son of man came eating and drinking, yeah. and you call him a glutton and a drunkard. Yeah, right. It's the eating and drinking, not the being around the not people. the being around okay. the sinners that Fair Jesus enough. himself correlates to being called a glutton and a drunkard. Well, what's your response to this? Hey, I'm playing. You're playing the devil's advocate. The buckle, buckles. So we're, we're the ones who have to figure this out. I feel like Jake already has the answer. <laughs> just testing us. <laughs> I think the answer is just this criticism is dumb. That's what I think the answer <laughs> yeah. is. Okay. <laughs> I mean, look, all the kings in the Old Testament, you can pretty much tell whether they're good or bad by whether they knock the high places down. The things right. of God don't have anything to do with the thing. We don't make this uneasy truce with idols. We just don't. And mm-hmm. and these were demonic, wicked, weird, creepy things that he's drawing on for there his iconography <laughs> there. That's the clearest that we've said it. <laughs> and you don't make your truce with these demonic idols. Right. And that's what you that's what down. Lewis Yeah, that's what Lewis was unwilling to call these things. Always he was unwilling to call any of this ancient pagan theology. He was not ever going to call it demonic. And he does a good job of describing the arbitrary craziness, creepiness, and uh, I don't know what to say about it. He actually does a pretty good job of describing a pagan orgy. Yeah. And but he lets his two little children protagonists be a part of it. Yeah, and people are going to think Without sexualizing People it, are going to It's not sexualizing it's, We're it. being so harsh. Yeah, I shouldn't use that word because it's not sexual. But man, you know what? It's orgiastic. If you it saw those is, people, if yeah. you were there seeing the people do the things that Lewis described, you'd think sex. Listen, yeah, I mean, listen, if you wanted to describe innocent children unwittingly being involved in an orgy and not being able to describe it, mm-hmm. you could do worse. One, one good way <laughs> that you might pull that off would be to describe it as it may have been Tig, but Lucy never discovered who was it. It was rather like Blind Man's Bluff, only everyone behaved as if they were blindfolded. It was not unlike Hunt the Slipper, but the slipper was never found. 
What made it more complicated was that the man on the donkey, who was old and enormously fat, began calling out at once, refreshments, time for refreshments, while falling off his donkey and being bundled onto it again by the others. Well, the donkey was under... I I feel like we're getting into R-rated territory just having you read it through that (laughs) lens. But how do you not? (laughs) Because it's, it's just him redeeming pagan culture, Nathan. He understood that he could use these metaphors and gods. Listen, just to above represent that, literally three sentences above three sentences above that. I sound stupid just saying. I feel stupid just saying. Uh, Go ahead. His face would have been almost too pretty for a boy's if it did not look so extremely wild. You felt, as Edmund said when he saw him a few days later, there's a chap who might do anything, absolutely anything. He seemed to have a great many names: Romeos, Basarius, and the Ram were three of them. There were a lot of girls with him, as wild as he. There was even unexpectedly someone on a donkey, and everybody was laughing, and everybody was shouting out that weird thing, Owen, Owen, oi, oi, oi. Yeah, 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 You know, the other weird thing about all this is we have a Christ figure cavorting with actual pagan deities that people really did have sex cults and death cults to where they did real sex and death stuff, wicked stuff. So to make the associations, it's not us. Well, yeah, it'd be one thing if it was the, the Narnia cre- version of... A character, but it's <laughs> actually Bacchus. It's actually like a god that people did real wicked things. That they had, I mean, like to celebrate this god, we they had orgies and they killed people. Yeah. Like that's what they did. That's how they worshipped Bacchus is by having orgies. Like, like, okay, we all know that fairies don't exist, and most cultures don't actually believe in fairies. It'd be one thing if Aslan was just surrounded by a bunch of fairies, and it's like, in Narnia, fairies do this thing. But it's different when you're using actual pagan iconography and the actual pagan names. I I feel like, so we keep hammering this point. I feel like nobody's going to like it. I feel insecure about this point. I feel like people are going to think we're just being grumpy. But I don't with, know what I don't know what to say to the people that think we're just being grumpy. Oh, with the uh, the pagan stuff. Yeah, with everything with this whole this whole section, they're going to say, "Well, you guys insist on giving the worst possible read to." That was the worst possible read, but you know what? It's actually a possible read. And why he, open yourself up? This for is that called criticism, criticism right? right? This is we're discussing the book, and so you need to consider the possible reads. And when you bring in a pagan sex god. Mm-hmm. whose cult of worship is orgies. Right. And you put him at the center of- An orgy-like- Festivity called a romp mm-hmm. that is described in confusing terms by the children who don't understand what's going on. And okay, let's maintain the childhood innocence about all of it. And Aslan the, is there. And so it's not all that it would be if he wasn't there, which is why they have the conversation. I wouldn't feel safe if he wasn't here. Right. Okay. It's somehow restrained, but like if you, if you can't accept that maybe there's something problematic about this, if you can, if you're not willing to ask the question, is there something problematic about putting the demon sex God in the middle of this thing and having an orgy like romp when the way that this is, God was traditionally worshipped was by orgy, like, and I think you you can't just say you're going to redefine iconography. Imagine if I wrote a fantasy story where my Christ figure was cavorting with guys in white hoods or guys with burning crosses, <laughs> Sorry, I'm back. or or a uh, floating swastika man came down. <laughs> yeah. It's like 
And you know what? This time he was magically good. Yeah, okay, fine. In this world, he's good, but I'm having a hard time getting over the fact that he's floating swastika, man. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Why not choose some different iconography, dude? <laughs> I'm going to at least suspect that you Floating might... swastika man likes to celebrate by baking things in his oven. Right, and, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and setting crosses on fire. You know, I mean, it's like, if, if you're going to insist on doing that, don't be mad at me if I'm like, well, I like what you're trying to say here, but couldn't we do it without floating swastika man? <laughs> well, it, the problem is it's not even floating swastika man. It's literal yeah, Hitler. It's actual Hitler. Yeah. They yeah. used his name. But Jake, actually, Bacchus in many of the classic myths is not portrayed as an orgiastic figure. Uh, uh, false. You guys. Yeah, no, pretty <laughs> much, pretty yeah. much always. Yeah, yeah, I know. Like, look up the word like... Look up. I mean, there's a reason Nietzsche chose Dionysus as the representation of the theatrical ubermensch on the stage. <laughs> it's because this is the man who is lawless and everything Nietzsche would admire. You and you and apparently is the name of Bacchus. You oi oi oi. <laughs> Just like exclamations of ecstasy. If you, I mean, what is a bacchanal? It's any crazed party with drunken revelry, ecstatic sexual experimentation, and wild music. This is a definition if you look up Bacchanal on the internet. Like, if you look up Bacchanal on Merriam-Webster, the number one definition, definition 1A, orgy. Definition 1B, orgy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and so, like... Livy, you guys know Livy. Livy says that the peculiar Ania corrupted Rome's unofficial but morally acceptable by, by a cult by introducing the Etruscan version. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Recent the new celebrations and this... initiations featured wine-fueled violence and violent sexual promiscuity in which the screams of the abused were drowned out by the din of drums and cymbals. <laughs> sounds great. Um... Recent examples on the web. Roberta's supper clubs transform into unbridled bacchanals. Naked women gorging and purging their howling bodies, expanding with fat and joy. So we know who Bacchus is. Right. <laughs> Lewis was aware who Bacchus is. and he, More aware than we are, and you are, of these realities. Yeah, this was like what he did. He was like classics major. And yet here it is, the crowd. So if they just happened to get caught up in this and Lewis still wrote about it, it would be weird. And There's no way of getting around this. A lot of people I've I've read on here who were even attacking the people who accused Lewis of Satanism and stuff, right. which that's ridiculous. Whatever. No, yeah. But they don't even. A lot of people don't know what to do with this chapter. This makes people uncomfortable. This chapter just makes people uncomfortable. I'll tell you what to do with it. Be, part, be uncomfortable with it. Yeah, and the part here, the the problem is this one sentence: the crowd and the dance round Aslan grew so thick and rapid that Lucy was confused. Mm-hmm. The problem is this, this is a round Aslan. And he's not doing anything about it. In fact, the party is there because of him. Yep. Well, and let's, that's the problem. Let's take some modern gods that people believe in. Let's imagine if you wrote a scene where Jesus is walking and there's Buddhas <laughs> dancing yeah. around him. Let's imagine Muhammad dancing w- around him. Let's imagine. It would be, I mean, you do much better with the Hindu gods, with Shiva, yeah. with the six arm sex gods of yeah, Hinduism, a... yeah. like dancing around, doing belly dances around Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's like. I mean, I hate to even say those sentences because it's blasphemy. Yeah, but but it's equivalent. But actually, Aslan isn't Jesus. It's oh, he's only Jesus. Supposal. He's only Jesus when you want him to be. (laughs) Let's suppose a Jesus-like figure cavorted with not with a Bacchus-like figure, but with Bacchus. It's weird. Yeah, and I don't think that any argument about 
his going and hanging around prostitutes or tax collectors helps justify this. It's just they weren't having these kinds of parties. Well, I don't know how much uh, Aslan should have silenced it. Yeah, I mean, these are the guys that should be fighting for the enemy, and yet the problem is this whole book ends. They are the enemy, guys. Let's make yeah. no mistake. If it is good that these old gods are dead, yeah. it is good that the gospel killed them. Think of the horrifying. What what was the thing that you said earlier? The, the cow. cow. Yeah. Like think of how horrifying the world was. Every time I read or think about stuff like that, I can't I, I can't yeah. imagine having to face a world so cruel. Yeah, you like, just thank God for And I know that I mean, we still do these kinds of things today. People still do these kinds of things. In the last century, my goodness, the gods of of athe of atheism, atheism, feminism, the children that are sacrificed at Planned Parenthood. Mm-hmm. We're killing the, but my goodness, like, but these are the things the, that Christians these have gods always must, meant to stand These out. gods must die. They must die. There is no room for quarter with these gods. They must die. Bacchus must die. And in a couple thousand years, let's not write a story where our Christ figure is dancing with Margaret Sanger. I mean, you know what I mean? Or Hitler. Or <laughs> Chairman Mao. You know, I mean, come on. Seriously. Yeah. And then for these characters then to become the heroes. Because the the, the comparison I keep thinking of mm-hmm. is when Aragorn uses the damned city to help fight the last battle. Remember one of that? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. He has to go and unleash them. But the problem is, is those guys are under his command for a wrong they have done. It's not like Bacchus is going to be then released from his sins right. because he helps Aslan. Despite his sins, despite the orgies and the abused screams that come from their parties, like you were reading, mm-hmm. despite these things, he's still somehow a good guy who's going to help tear down these bridges and be a force for good. Because like, apparently he knows how to make good wine and party. I don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. So it's awful. And so then you do get the weird, unjust, really, punishments of these people. The guy getting turned into a tree, the boys getting turned into pigs. Maybe it was just, but what's pointed is that we don't know. We don't have, there's no context provided. Well, what we know is that it's Aslan, therefore it must be, therefore it must be just. I'm supposed to assume that as a reader, I'm asked to You're supposed to accept when you see the guy that it's not just happenstance. It's not just a one-off where dad got a little out of hand. This is an abusive. You're just supposed to accept the weird one is the pig, the boy pigs, because it Mm -hmm. seems Aslan always gives characters a chance to repent or turn. He doesn't just turn people into pigs willy nilly, but maybe these boys have just always been that way. Well, you know what? That's the other thing about it is that Aslan has a kind of compassion that I think most uh, modern evangelicals would associate with the New Testament. And so if you're going to have sudden, shall we say, Old Testament style justice, I think I would prefer it if it just came straight from the lion's mouth. You know, if Aslan wanted to just turn that guy into a tree and we, and Lewis just wanted to say, you know what? Sometimes God just punishes people. Yeah. That'd be fine. But the fact that Lewis actually can't just give us Old Testament, what people call Old Testament punishment, but he has to give that to the pagan deities. Like as if, if we need to bring in a, God needs to bring in a hatchet man. Anytime he needs to do some real, you know, old school justice, like he's got to do it through other means. Aslan can punish whoever he wants. You know, if you're mm-hmm. going to stick with the allegory, Aslan can do what he wants to who he wants. And that is the God that we serve. But yeah. uh, Lewis doesn't want to let Aslan just have the full dignity of going in and cleaning up a town. 
So he lets Bacchus do it. So he lets Bacchus do it. <laughs> Bacchus turns people to pigs. Yeah. It's it's like if 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 God like God couldn't just rain down plagues on the Egyptians, he needed to like get get their Egyptian gods to come to life and do it or something like that. Which is just not not how things work. Even no. even in nice supposals. But hey, it's a good book. <laughs> this is a good book. <laughs> I really liked it. I I do appreciate the fact about Lewis that in his baptism of paganism. He doesn't try and ever pretend like paganism wasn't dangerous. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say it's a good chapter or one that shouldn't be eradicated from the face of the earth, but I do like the the little trace of divinity. The the thing the trace of goodness that I find in this awful chapter is that Lewis doesn't pretend like Bacchus isn't dangerous. He just pretends like that danger can be put to some use, which is arguably even stupider. But at least he didn't try and pretend like Bacchus was just nice. Yeah. Bacchus, you misunderstood, man. <laughs> oh, man. You on, you on, you oi, oi, oi. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You guys want to get drunk and parade through the town and do some vigilante justice? Let's do it. Let's go turn people into, let's go turn some people into trees. Turn some bad dads into trees and... <laughs> Naughty little boys into pigs. Naughty little boys into <laughs> pigs. <laughs> They generally turn themselves into pigs. Yeah. yeah. They don't need any help. Well, maybe that's the whole idea. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Also, I just I just never have liked. I don't like stories where characters without any context are set up as terrible people just so we can feel good about. Like, Lewis obviously doesn't like little boys that are like that. And he doesn't like abusive dads. But and who does? Right. But it just always feels a little cheap to me when it's like this person just existed you know as a, as a, as the god of this universe you conjured up somebody that you didn't care about just so you could knock them down that's just i know there's you can everybody can probably think of good examples of where that's done for good purpose in certain stories but i when i feel it i don't like it so if, if somebody kind of disguise that artifice and make it feel like it was inevitable that that character was going to be there it's fine i guess but <clears> when <throat> when i feel when i feels like the author's just exercising his own demons just getting back at the schoolmaster that beat him or getting back at the little boys that he thought were obnoxious. I want to play, sorry, I know we're trying to wrap up. I want to give three minutes devil's advocacy to this. Yeah, okay. That comes at us. Yeah. We spent how many episodes last summer celebrating and enjoying Ooh, very nice. a series <laughs> that takes pagan witchcraft and imagery and demonic things and turns them into a force for good as though it were nothing and makes no, I mean, we're talking witches and wizards and magic and sorcery and bats and owls and spells and dragons. And all of a sudden, these things are just good because we said they're yep. good. My iconography argument's pretty damning there. And all this iconography that has yeah, been- Swastikas are great in this universe. <laughs> <laughs> in this universe, dragons and witches are good. Right. You know, and we said, "Oh, it's just a fairy tale to tell a good story." Uh, okay, no response to that. argument number one: Harry Potter. Okay, sure, we'll never read door. Harry Potter again. Problem solved. All right, that's the easy answer, right? Yeah, especially since Rawlings <laughs> keeps messing it up with these new movies. All right, argument number one: Lewis knew what he was doing in a way that Rawling. I don't think this is going to quite win the day. But Lewis knew who Bacchus was. He writes about Bacchus accurately. He uses Bacchus's actual iconography and imagery in a pretty potent, well-written way. And Rowling did her research on magic and the occult. Yeah, 
I guess. Lewis was a professed believer, though. You know, the the devil seems like he has us in a pretty tight corner. I want to make an observation. This isn't so much an argument as an observation. The observation is, I don't feel the pressure. I don't feel the tension of the devil's argument. Because it seems to me that Lewis is tapping into the occult in a way that Rowling doesn't. And I don't know that I'm going to be able to make that argument fly, but it sure does feel that way. I don't don't think it matters. I'm happy to say that Rowling is tapping just as much or more into the occult as Lewis. The difference is that Rowling is not painting a Christ figure who is divine in her stories, placing them next to this stuff and trying to harmonize them and say that essentially Jesus approves of all of this. She's not saying Jesus approves of any of this occult stuff. She's not trying to make statements in a like cosmological sense about about these occult realities. No, she's she, she using, avoids making cosmological she, statements everywhere, anyway, she, everywhere can, she can. She avoids it, yeah. and she's using these pagan conventions to tell these pagan this pagan iconography to tell her fun little story. It's very different than Lewis bringing in this pagan iconography and placing it next to his allegorical Christ figure Mm -hmm. and trying to harmonize and make them cool with one another. But aren't Dumbledore and Harry kind of like Christ figures in their way? Oh, sure. Every hero in any story (laughs) is, but that's not the same thing. (laughs) I'm just trying to anticipate the silly argument. No, listen, Aslan is a lion who is the son of the emperor over the sea who actually created Narnia. Mm. Let's not pretend like we don't know how this ends, sung it into existence as he sung all worlds into existence and ushers people into his everlasting kingdom after his final judgment over every land that he then undoes. Like, no, this is Lewis's depiction of Jesus. Mm -hmm. What if Jesus was Jesus, Lord and King over another world, another realm? Let's suppose that, but it is in his mind, Jesus. Mm Mm-hmm. And he's harmonizing Jesus with these pagan gods, these demon gods. It's one thing to to take a stories that somebody takes and uses pagan, you know, pagan iconography and builds their story out of it. It's another thing to take that pagan iconography and to get to, to get all philosophical and theological with it and try to harmonize it in a to make a a real statement about reality about spiritual realities with it. It's just not the same thing. I mean, I think you could almost say it as simply as J.K. Rowling is the first person to admit that her stories are fake. C.S. Lewis would would never say the same thing about Narnia. He would say basically- He would say that, you know, some of that classic Lewis Tolkien, you know, oh, but they're more true than reality kind of. Rowling would say, I bent the rules of reality to create a fun story Lewis would say, given the rules of reality being a little different, here's how reality would actually happen. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. He's making cosmological statements, and they are wicked, and they are false. Yes. Sorry, I was trying to see if Bacchus made it into heaven at the end. <laughs> he doesn't. It doesn't I, looked up, I looked up, again, what how he comes into Tumnus, and there's like the life and letters of Silenus, who are... And then there's a reference to how back in the days of summer, they used to come Bacchus and Silenus. Well, actually, that's a good example of what you're talking about, yeah, because it's... none of us really got caught on him using pagan iconography for Mr. Tumnus describing how he's kind of doing the same thing, right? But he wasn't making 
as Jake said, cosmological statements there. He was just using naiads and dryads and Bacchus to tell a goofy little part of his his story yep. and to make a little point about what, what his fictional world used to be like, something similar to kind of what Rowling does with her stuff. And none of us were bothered by that or even thought to be bothered by he that. He told about the midnight dances and how the nymphs who lived in the wells and the dryads who lived in the trees came out to dance with the fawns about long honey parties after the milk white stag who give you wishes if you caught him about feasting and treasure seeking with the wild red dwarves in deep mines and caverns far beneath the forest floor, and then about summer when the woods were green and old Silenus on his fat donkey would come to visit them, and sometimes Bacchus himself, and then the streams would run with wine instead of water, and the whole forest would, be, would give itself up to jollification for weeks on end. Not that it isn't always winter now, he added gloomily. Yep, using the same imagery, but it's, it's not, not the same thing. It's not baptizing that imagery. Right. And therein lies the difference. Brennan's got a weird smile on his face. Oh, I'm just all the love this is going to get us. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I, I'm I'm on board. I mean, I'm getting on board. This I'm is... I'm sorry, folks. I, like I, the... I think I warned people from the beginning that we're always, we see these things and it's not like we're reading into anything. Well, how about this? Let me, we're let me just say drawing this. the lines between. Lewis is his own best critic because yeah. you've got those people in the story who want to baptize the dark old things from yeah. thousands of years ago. In, in service of the good. And those people get their heads walloped off and all get killed by the High Kings coming back. Yeah. You've, you've actually got, a, Lewis actually writes the perfect scene of these weirdo pagan people wanting to give themselves to corrupt and degraded old things in his world, the White Witch. So yeah, ideally what should have happened is the girls get separated from Aslan and Bacchus is there and they get wrapped up into this party and then Aslan has to come and restore order by like growling and scaring them away or something mm-hmm. and saying, you know, Bacchus is dangerous, sometimes useful, but we'll have nothing to do with him or something like that. Yeah. That was still had its issues, but at least it would have been a better res- resolution than what he gave us. Yeah. So. If Lewis just wanted to do a pagan deities are kind of cool, I think they're, I as an author think they're cool and dangerous and interesting. Yeah. Riff, he could have the scene where the girls get swept up in this really dangerous orgy yeah. thing he wouldn't call it you know romp and they have to and they're like whoa what's happening and they see all this stuff and then they escape or aslan comes Shows or something up, yeah. there's a way to do that instead he has aslan up on the in the conductor's bench yeah <laughs> waving his yeah yeah so there we go yeah yep i'm sure this is going to be the most problematic of all the scenes in all the books Guys, we can't stop yet, though. How many lanterns or lampposts out of seven do you give to oh Prince Caspian? I gave six to... This was pretty good. I liked it. Mm-hmm. Six. Six? <coughs> going for a straight six here? You're not going to dock at any, any lampposts for the Bacchus? Yeah, five. Five? Okay. Five for the Bacchus. Docking at a lamppost for the Bacchus. Mm-hmm. Jake, same question? The same answer. Five? Five, yeah. Do do you predict that? Do you think that there will be a seven lamppost book in the series? I yeah, I do. I think the yeah the horse and his boy. I think. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I'm gonna give it five and a half. I'm oh, gonna wow. give it a half a lamppost just for having really cool battle scenes. And you really dig Bacchus. Yeah, <laughs> for having that awesome. <laughs> so you you rate this above Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe? I realize that objectively, Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe is a better book for me, just in terms of what I enjoyed. I think it's simply because the Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe 
just feels hacked to me. Like it's just, I'm so familiar with it. It's just hard to enter into it fresh. Whereas Prince Caspian, I didn't remember it. So I had a better time with it. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I have the same experience. The, to me, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is the least enjoyable book to go back to yes. because it's the one I... It's like watching A New Hope again. Yeah, exactly. But it was my gateway drug to the whole series. Right. And I love the whole series. And I'm not going to forget what it did for me as a kid. So it's well, got to get... It's got all the points on that. I think I'm for my lamppost system, well, you can choose for your own lamppost system. <laughs> do, do you want your lampposts to be what you perceive to be the objective reality or they, do, they, do you want them to be your experience? My lampposts, I think, at are this just... moment in t- your experience at this moment in time, right. that's it. I think that probably m- many of these books would be seven lamppost books, just... Objectively. Objectively, or six, you know, dock them a point for some of the weird, screwy stuff. But my experience of Caspian was... I'm giving a, an extra lamp post for, or an extra half a lamp post for just being a little bit more fun for me to read this time. And I liked Trumpkin a lot. We didn't talk much about him, but I really liked Trumpkin. And I liked, what was the tutor's name? Caspian's? Cornelius. Dr. Cornelius. Those were good characters. And, yeah. yep. and I just liked old Narnia that sucked. And Nickabrick is a pretty cool name. Nickabrick was good. And the just the mundane nature of the politics of the villains, just the fact that it was such a temple of doom to uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobes, Raiders of the Lost Ark, where everything that was fantastical suddenly became kind of dark and moody and sad. I, I enjoyed that about it. So extra half a lamppost for me. Brandon, did we ask you? No, yeah, you guys both said uh, five. Five, lamp, five lampposts. All right, let's do it fast. We can't leave people without their, yeah, we their can, donor shout outs. We can shout them. Shout them not out. All right, guys, don't shout out Robert and Ronder the Lovebird, the artful Anthony Dodger. Don't shout out Little Anthony's Cigar Store. Please don't shout out the immortal Chelsea E., Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley, Lily of the Valley, Andrew and Esther the Lovebirds, the inscrutable Jenny Z, the Keith Master, David's Mighty Men, Trucking, John and Jill and Little Baby Max, Jay and Katie who are cold and love cheese, and C.S. Lewis, including Till We Have Faces, my beloved mother Beth. Consul Prime Adam, Galactic Princess Emily, Fletcher the Woe Bedraggled Wizard of Yore, Je- Jeremy the Dark Hooded Lord of Death, Nathan Not Me, definitely don't shout out the incandescent Meredith, Maya, Maya. Oh, Brandon. I said don't. Oh, sorry. Ryan the Red Avenger and Judith of the Ladies of Justice, Danny the Dude, DJ Sammy G, Benny and Danny Tiberius, Eric and Catherine the Lovebirds, Professor and Lady X. I don't think we should shout any of them out. Let's shout out Dylan the Death Dealer of Doom, though, because he's he's new. Dylan, Dylan, the Death, Death Eater De- of Doom. The Death Eater? Death Dealer. Death Dealer. Death Eater of Doom. <laughs> Death Dylan, Eater of Doom Dylan, is Dylan pretty the Death, awesome. <laughs> Dylan, the Death Dealer of Doom. That is hard to Dylan, say. Dylan, the Death Dealer of Doom. It's Death like, Eater is easier to say than Death Dealer. Yeah, but I'm afraid Dylan's a Death Dealer. And probably Rowling's got like copyright or something. Yeah, yeah we, we don't want to get sued. Yeah. <laughs> what would the lawsuit spell? <laughs> what, would, what would the incantation for it be? Litagio. Litagio. Yeah, there we go. I love it. <laughs> I knew somebody would say something fun. All right, folks. Good night. Support the booking at patreon.com forward slash the booking. Bye.